Welcome to the World War I History Podcast, produced by the MacArthur Memorial. We invite you to follow us on Twitter at MacArthur1880 or find the General Douglas MacArthur Memorial on Facebook. This podcast was sponsored by the Ernst and Gertrude Tico Charitable Foundation. Today we're chatting with Dr. Stefan Hell, the author of the books I Am and World War I. We've covered a lot of different World War I topics on this podcast, but this one is a particularly unique one. Before we get started, though, Dr. Hell, can you tell us a little bit about your background and what drew you to this topic? With pleasure. Let me thank you first for the opportunity to talk about this topic today. I'm a German historian. I study European, Asian, and international history, and I'm interested primarily in international relations and in the history of international organization. I wrote a first book on the Sino-Japanese conflict of the early 1930s and specifically looked at the League of Nations response. This was about the early sanctions system. Uh, Zion played a, quite an intriguing, minor, but an intriguing role in that conflict. And from there, I came to look into Zion's League of Nations membership more generally. That book then was about political and security issues, but much more so about public health, human trafficking, and opium control, all on an international level, which was novel at the time. Through that work, I realized that Zion's path to League membership led through World War I and was quite intrigued. I realized that I could combine archival material that I knew was available in Bangkok with archives in Berlin, in London, and in Paris to tell this rather unique story of a small country carving out its path to a sovereign existence in a very much changing international order. So you could say that this book is kind of like a prequel to my previous book. Of course, as a book project uh, itself, it's been marvelous because primarily of my publisher, River Books in Bangkok, who produced it in 2017 in both an English and a Thai language version, and in the most wonderful production quality, large size, four-color print throughout, and over 300 photographs, making it a really attractive book. And I can attest to that. It's an absolutely gorgeous book, and I really enjoyed reading it. Getting into the book itself, can you describe Siam's political history leading up to 1914? What does its government look like, and how does it interact with the major colonial powers? So Thailand, or Siam as it was called then, uh, in 1914 is an absolutist kingdom. The population of around 8 million is ruled by a small elite of royals and noblemen. By 1914, the ruling Chakri dynasty has been in power for some 130 years, and the present king, Wajirawut, or by his dynastic name Rama VI, ascended the throne only four years earlier. He succeeded his father, King Jalalongkorn, who had a long and very transformative reign. Historians of Thailand often speak of the country as a buffer state between the British and French spheres of interest. You have British India and Burma to the west, British Malaya to the south, and French Indochina to the east. Many of your listeners will be familiar with the Entente Cordiale, the set of agreements between Britain and France of 1904, through which these two countries settled their colonial rivalries. It was these European policy decisions to which Zayam owed its formal independence. At the same time, Zayam's rulers modernized the country's government and legal system, making it more compatible with the West. They employed hundreds of foreign advisors in government to support this process of modernization and conceded trade privileges to Western powers through a series of unequal treaties, 
which many of you, your、um, listeners, will be familiar with in the context of China. Ping Wajirabut himself had studied in Oxford and was a, was very familiar with Western culture to the point that he translated Shakespeare plays into Thai. He adopted the Western concept of nationalism to Siam, campaigning in numerous ways to instill a sense of patriotism or national pride as a means of unifying and centralizing the country and rallying the population around his trifecta of nation, faith, and king. So we have a, a small kingdom in 1914, squeezed between powerful colonial neighbors, with a government modernizing along Western lines, campaigning for nationalism, and doing what it can to maintain independence and secure the position of the ruling elite at the same time. When World War One begins in 1914, Siam declares neutrality. And in the book, you explain how Siam's elites were rather divided. Some had strong ties to Germany, some to Russia, some to France, some to Great Britain. But you also point out that as a country, Siam was more pro-German to start with. Why was Germany seen as the more favorable、uh, of the colonial powers? So the bonds between individual princes of this extensive royal family of Siam and Western states come mainly from the practice of sending these elite children to the West for their education. They then return speaking the language of their host country, English, German, French, Russian, and with an understanding of culture and mindset, and often a deep affinity for their host country and its people. In this way, Britain exerts the greatest influence on individual members of the royal elite. But Germany also has several things going for it in terms of a positive image in Siam in this period. The most important is that it doesn't carry with it any colonial baggage. It isn't seen as a colonial power in Southeast Asia. France had grabbed Siamese territory at its western border in living memory, what is today Laos and Cambodia. British colonies were bordering on Siam nearly everywhere else, but Germany was not seen as a potential or even an actual threat. The second aspect is Germany's image of the home of science and high tech, something we're still, in a way, familiar with today. In 1914, the modern technology was telegraph, railways, pharmaceuticals, ships, and machinery. Germany also provided quality consumer goods in demand by Siam's elite. And a third aspect was Germany's military might, which commanded respect in Bangkok. Princes and noblemen often sent their sons to Germany specifically for military training. They valued both Prussian military discipline and Germans, Germany's、uh, modern military technology. In fact, as the war evolves, there's a widespread view, not only in Siam, that Germany may win this war. For these reasons, the let's call it German faction. Among groups vying for influence on policy in Siam, is quite influential up to 1917, albeit ultimately unsuccessful. What does the average person in Siam know about the war in the early years,、um, and is that different than maybe what the elites know about the war? This is an important question to ask because it reminds us to try and look at history through the eyes of contemporaries rather than merely with hindsight from today. I'd say. The general population in Siam did not consume media in 1914. Newspapers were generally limited to Bangkok and provincial centers. The urban elites, however, were very interested in the in the war, and they devoured news from the wireless services and from the papers that arrived less and less as the world war unfolded by ship. The government archives in Bangkok hold many long letters written by Siam's 
senior diplomatic representative in Europe, the minister in Paris, to the king. In these letters, the minister gives lengthy accounts of how the war unfolded, descriptions of battles, and his assessments of strategies and politics. I've also seen two albums with photos of the war in Europe, which were presented to the king's brother, the chief of the army general staff. Because Siam declared its neutrality in 1914, nationals and diplomatic representatives of all combatant states remained in the country and launched an all-out propaganda war with the aim of influencing opinions in their favor. Britons had the advantage that the three non-Thai language newspapers were in English, and the telegraphic messages that reached Bangkok at the time via Rangoon and Saigon were censored there. But the Germans, not to be outdone, soon launched their own newspaper in German and Thai to promote their messages. Earlier you mentioned that nationalism in Siam was kind of a mixture of nation, king, and faith. What role does Buddhism play in the evolving decision for Siam to go to war? When looking at Buddhism in, in 1914 Siam, it's important to understand its paramount role in structuring society and individual life. Buddhist ethics guide the behavior of individuals and the local monastery is the center of communal life and education. And Buddhist rituals mark basically all significant events in individual lives from birth to death. The second point to make refers to the unique role of the king as the superior worldly power and at the same time as protector of religion. This means that King Wachirawut cannot declare war if it runs counter to Buddhist belief. Interestingly, we can see opposing views on whether going to war is in line with Buddha's teaching or not among religious intellectuals. One monk named Prakte Muli rose to prominence in 1950 with radically pacifistic views which he preached and also published, and which ran counter to the king's concept of nation, faith, king, that would justify going to war as an act of defending Buddhism from an external threat. Indeed, by 1916, the Supreme Patriarch, the highest-ranking Buddhist monk in the country, and himself a respected intellectual, gave a famous sermon on, in support of the king's position. He argued that a Buddhist nation required an army to defend itself and its beliefs and invoked canonical scriptures to justify this argument. With this authoritative view, the argument was then finally decided in favor of the king. And if we look ahead from 1916, this view that going to war was justified by the Buddhist faith meant that religion could be invoked in the declaration of war itself in numerous symbolic acts during the period of war, and, for example, by sending military chaplains to Europe with the troops. And after victory, when the returning soldiers were blessed by the Supreme Patriarch, and the king framed the victory as one of Buddhist virtue over barbarism. Can you walk us through Siam's decision to go to war, and then the process by which it declares war? The decision to declare war itself was taken by the king in consultation with his advisory council on the 28th of May 1917. The United States and France had been urging Zion to join the Allied cause and the king and his advisers judged the time was right to do so. In their calculation, the benefits of joining the war outweighed the risks. Entering into the Great War was the signal the king sought to galvanize his nationalistic efforts, a national enterprise, if you want. My research in French archives helped me understand that France was actually the main country pushing Zion to join the Allies, not the US or Britain.
For French foreign policymakers, this was an attempt to rebuild relations which had been seriously damaged by the um, conflicts I mentioned earlier over territory around the turn of the century. All the while, Britain was actually quite happy with the status quo, as it was the country exerting the greatest influence over Zion's politics and economy. Two points are important to make here. As I said earlier, Zion was, to a considerable degree, at the mercy of its powerful colonial neighbors, Britain and France. However, I don't mean to imply that Zion was simply bowing to foreign pressure in entering the war. In fact, the files show clearly that the decision was the king's. There were different options on the table, and the decision to declare war was taken for clearly articulated reasons. Or we could, we could say Zion had agency. The second point is similar, but refers to the king himself. King Wajirawut has generally been seen by historians as a rather weak monarch, drawn to artistic pursuits, uncomfortable in formal social settings, not too gifted as an administrator. What my research has shown me, however, is that the king was deeply immersed in the run-up to the declaration of war. He was clearly the center of decision-making, and rather than avoiding taking a stand, he yearned to do so against the explicit advice of many of his senior advisors. His letters to confidants in the months leading up to the declaration of war revealed that the king was dying to act, to leave the safe middle of the road, to make a statement. The declaration of war was made by the king in front of the assembled court and the diplomatic corps on the 22nd of July, 1917. He invoked history and mythology, but also modern international law. The formal justification for the declaration of war was Germany's submarine warfare, a topic that is uh, very familiar to all of us who study the war. This requires Zion to defend the principles of humanity and international law of nations, so went the argument. In the king's words, Zion had a duty to declare war on Germany and Austria-Hungary. At the same time, in a well-planned move, all 200 German and Austro-Hungarian nationals were rounded up. German ships were confiscated before they could be irreparably damaged by their crews, and the now enemy embassies were presented with the declaration of war, and the diplomats asked to leave the country promptly. In Germany, uh, two handful of Siamese students were stuck in enemy territory in late July of 1917, while most Siamese had been brought to neutral Switzerland in time. Those ten unfortunate young men lived out the remainder of the war in a comfortable officer's POW camp in Germany, and while one of them died of tuberculosis only days before the armistice, the remaining nine eventually made it back home after the war. You make the case that Siam entering the war is a statement about independence and a rejection of colonialism. I think you've already touched a little bit on this, but can you elaborate a little bit more? I spoke earlier about the declaration of war serving domestically as a rallying point for the king's elite-sponsored nationalism. Internationally, the declaration of war had two main objectives. The first was immediate. By declaring war, Siam signaled to the world that it was a sovereign actor in charge of its own destiny. It was not a de facto colony, but an independent country with the ability to declare war on a major Western power. With hindsight, we would look at these events and say, oh well, some small remote country fell in line behind the US and also declared war on Germany late in the game. But for contemporaries in Siam, a country having to carefully balance its policies to maintain a shaky independence, this was a huge decision. The first time Zion declared war in modern times, and the first time it declared war on a European power. 
The second thrust was more long-term. By 1917, it was clear that the war would one day come to an end, and the files show that Siam's policymakers had a clear understanding of the necessity to join the war in order to benefit from a post-war order. Their objective was to use participation in the war as leverage to strengthen its independence and to rid Siam of the unequal treaties which limited its legal and commercial sovereignty. We can say generally that small countries like Siam were usually the objects of policy in colonial times. Policies were made typically in Paris, in London, in Washington. But this declaration of war demonstrated that Bangkok too was capable of acting in its own interest in the realm of foreign policy at least. Many people probably thought that Siam's declaration of war was purely symbolic, but Siam actually commits troops to the conflict. Tell us about the Siamese Expeditionary Force. How is it organized and how many men go to Europe? So this is where the story gets really interesting. As you rightly say, there wasn't all that much riding on a symbolic declaration of war by some remote Asian kingdom. Actually, a contemporary German newspaper commented uh, along the lines, I'm paraphrasing, don't expect to see Siamese troops in Europe anytime soon. But that was exactly what then happened. In a, I would say, daring decision, Siam actually commits troops. Between mid-1917, when war is declared, and early 1918, it puts together a small expeditionary force of 1,200 volunteers. They're made up of pilots and aviation mechanics, of truck drivers and medics, all designed to demonstrate to the West how developed and modern Zion was. I found this wonderfully strange quote in an English newspaper from later in 1918, which said, and here I quote, Siamese are particularly suited to aviation work on account of their extraordinary eyesight, their smallness, and their daring. Now, Siam had no experience in fielding troops for Europe, so this was logistically quite challenging. It started with things like uniforms. Because of, of the climate in Thailand, there was no suitable fabric for the troops to be sent to a European winter. And it didn't help that the ship transporting the thick khaki fabric ordered in Japan back to Bangkok ran onto a reef and the cargo was lost. Transportation was also a major problem. Zayam itself did not possess a ship that could transport the troops, so it entered into protracted discussions with Britain and France to purchase space on a ship. The war had disrupted shipping lines, available vessels were of course in great demand and in short supply. Eventually, however, a ship is found, and on the 20th of June, 1918, the 1,200 men set sail for Europe. The king sent them off, and he said, I have a quote here, you will be the first ones to carry the fame and honor of my troops overseas. You will be the first ones to unfurl the Thai flag in Europe. Do not embarrass our sons and daughters when they are leafing through the pages of Thai history. When they come to this page, make sure they cry out, oh, they were brave. They love the Thai nation. That's a great quote. That really encapsulates the mood at the time. The Siamese Expeditionary Force arrives in Marseille on July 30th, 1918, just as the Allies are stopping the final German offensive and then preparing for their own final drive of the war. How is the Expeditionary Force received? As celebrated as the troops were when they set sail in Bangkok, their arrival in Marseille is quite underwhelming. First, the French confused them with Indo-Chinese laborers and thereby def defied the main purpose of the expeditionary force to impress Europe with the soldiers of an independent kingdom. 
but the French realize their mistake and then provide a reasonably friendly and appropriate welcome. The French army had been informed by the French foreign ministry that they were to treat the new ally well, as improved relations were very much in Paris's interest. And they may be forgiven, I'd say, for not paying tremendous attention to this one ship with Siamese, given that American troops were arriving by the thousands every day during this period. Quite many of the men weren't in good shape after the month-long journey, and they all rested a few days first. Some even had to be admitted to hospital. We have photographs of Siamese troops touring the Marseille harbor and visiting the cinema during these first days, which will have been quite impressive and, and quite alien to them. The officers and the Siamese ambassador visiting from Paris were feted by the commanding French general. There was wine and champagne and speeches were made celebrating the new friendship and camaraderie. The commanding Siamese officer, Pierre Pichai Chanrit, had a good command of French and seems to have done a pretty decent job in these first days. The war ends in November 1918, and there isn't a lot of time for the expeditionary force to play a role in, but does it see combat and does it suffer any casualties? In Marseille, the troops were divided into two groups. The 400 men of the Aviation Corps traveled to an aviation training school in Istre, in the south of France, where they spent their time receiving flight and mechanical training. They didn't see any action in the remaining months of the war. The French army was basically not willing to let them fly more than on training flights around Istle. Although three of the Siamese were qualified pilots who had earlier acquired their licenses right there in France. This means that the original intention of showing off Siam's modernity through the command of modern weapons and technology didn't really work out. The second group, some 800 officers and men of the Motor Transport Corps, headed north from Marseille to Dourdan and Lyon where they received vehicle and maintenance training, orientation, as well as some weapons and generally mili general military training. In late September, on their way to the front lines by train, the troops passed through Versailles, where the French army maintained a logistics hub that supplied them with winter clothing, weapons, and equipment. They were then stationed near Troyes behind the front. They operated under France's first reserve automotive unit, and their work consisted of reinforcement of the French Fourth Army and evacuation of civilians from areas destroyed by battle. The Siamese Motor Transport Corps operated some 200 Renault trucks and worked continuously for three weeks, driving ammunition, food and troops, and struggling with heavy rain, fog, and of course abysmal road conditions. Now, during this intensive period, relations with the French liaison officers deteriorated rapidly in what I describe as a mix of wartime intensity, racism, and intercultural and language difficulties. This went so far that commanders in Bangkok even contemplated withdrawing the Siamese troops altogether. But fortunately, the armistice then diffused the situation. In the book, I describe these conflicts in some detail as they encapsulate the larger policy issues we were discussing earlier about sovereignty and colonialism. Here, these issues played out on ground level just behind the front lines in the east of France. Uh, Nineteen members of the Siamese Expeditionary Force lost their lives. Two died in Bangkok during preliminary training. Nine died in France, and eight soldiers died in occupied Germany. While most casualties were from pneumonia, one man died from an accident with a hand grenade and two fell victim to traffic-related incidents. None of them was killed by enemy fire. In fact, the real highlight of the story comes only after the armistice when the French decide to bring the Siamese troops along for the occupation of Germany. 
I have another quote here from King Wajirawut, um, who said, It was the proudest day of my life when I learned that my troops had advanced into enemy territory. Uh, the Siamese are put in charge of the area around a town called Neustadt an der Weinstraße and remain there until mid-1919. And before leaving Europe, they march in the grand victory celebrations on the Champs-Élysées on the 14th of July, 1919, once more symbolically staking their claim to sovereignty in the very heart of France. Uh, I often tell my German friends that their country was once occupied by Thailand, which without fail always produces a puzzled reaction. <laughs> I'm sure. Italy's decision to enter World War I has often been met with skepticism. It's often seen as something that was very calculated and then something that doesn't work out very well. In the case of Siam, though, the decision seems to be very calculated, but it works out really well for Siam in the end. So can you explain how Siam benefits from its participation in the war? Indeed, I would argue that Siam's participation in World War I was a political success. Domestically, it served to strengthen elite rule and the profile of the king as a military leader. As the centerpiece of an elite-sponsored nationalism campaign, it rallied the population around the successful outcome, not least due to the grand victory celebration that were carefully staged in 1918 and 1919 back in Bangkok. That the death toll was so low added to the overall positive reaction. The position of the Siamese military and society was also strengthened by this success, and there was even a short boom in aviation and aircraft manufacturing in the early 1920s, resulting from the capacity and materials the troops brought back with them from France. I would argue that internationally, the balance sheet is even more positive. Siam joins the Paris peace negotiations as an allied country, where it sits at the table with representatives of the major Western powers. Siamese princes signed the Treaty of Versailles, and the kingdom thereby dictates the terms of peace to Germany. It gains a number of ocean-going German ships that had anchored in the country during the phase of neutrality, as well as German business assets in the country. And Siam can immediately renounce the unequal treaty with Germany, of course. Then, in a setback, Britain and France refuse to renounce their unequal treaties with Siam and Versailles, too entrenched as imperialistic ideologies built in 1919, and of course, if they gave Siam equal treatment, what would that mean for demands in Burma, in India, or in Malaya? But Siam becomes a founding member of the League of Nations and uses the new international system to its advantage during the following two decades. Overall, we can say that joining the war boosted Siam's stature in the world and set it up to regain its full sovereignty later in the 1920s. What is the legacy of World War I for Thailand today, and how is the war remembered? World War I is not remembered in contemporary Thailand like it is in Britain or France or the Benelux countries, where it was the traumatic event for an entire generation, and the existence of countries and societies was at stake. I would say that Thai society today, similar to most other societies in Asia and the West, has very little sense of history. The country's participation in World War I does, however, appear as one of the landmark events in curricula and official histories. The most visible legacy of Siam's participation in World War I is actually the Thai flag. It was created by King Wajirawut using red, blue, and white, the three colors used by all three major allies, in an effort to make the country's symbol look more modern. The previous flag featuring a white elephant on red background was deemed not modern, international enough. 
Another very visible legacy of World War One is the monument honoring the Siamese Expeditionary Force in a prominent location opposite of the Grand Palace in downtown Bangkok. The quite beautiful monument was constructed after the war and holds the remains of the 19 fallen soldiers. If any of your listeners find themselves in Bangkok one day, I highly recommend they seek it out. The centenary of Siam's declaration of war in 2017 and the years since have seen quite some events focusing on the war. There have been around 10 exhibitions that I'm aware of, an academic conference, lectures, ceremonial events held at the war memorial, and we managed to get my book on Siam and the war ready in time for the centenary and a high-profile book launch. Perhaps a final word on remembrance of World War I in Thailand. The memory of World War II is much stronger because there was a Japanese invasion and the effects of World War II were felt much more immediately in Thailand than those of World War I. Also, Siam or Thailand is a rare case of a country which stood on opposite sides in the two world wars. While it joined the Allied camp in World War I, it had developed an authoritarian regime with a strong ideological affinity with Japan and Germany during World War II which led Thailand to declare war on the United States and the United Kingdom. But I guess that's a story for a whole podcast. Well, thank you very much for chatting with us today. We really, really appreciate your time. My pleasure. Thanks again for having me. Thank you for listening. If you have any questions, suggestions, or comments, please contact Amanda Williams at amanda.williams at norfolk.gov.